filled with teaching, truths and issues that matter. Bernie Diamond's A Different Perspective, part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. You may be familiar with the very powerful saying, Make Jesus' last command our first priority. It is, of course, a reference to the Great Commission that Jesus left his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Well, our special guest today says the saying is so important that we are sleepwalking into oblivion unless there is a dramatic change to the way we see that command. I hope that's got your attention. Of course, that Great Commission not only calls for conversions, but more importantly, to make disciples. What if we were able to identify the principles of disciple-making that have been proven effective in all of the cultural contexts of the world? What if we were able to pinpoint the strengths that are in their simplicity, their adaptability and their flexibility. Well, get ready for an important conversation, Unpacking Thoughts, from a new book entitled Daring to Disciple, with one of Australia's most well-respected figures in Christian ministry, mission and leadership, Dr. Stuart Robinson. He's a best-selling author, mentor and speaker. He's recognised as a modern father of the new church in some Asian contexts, where he is an expert in cross-cultural mission and the Christian response to the religion of Islam. He's also a research fellow at the Melbourne School of Theology, but when you ask him about his life and his ministry, his reply is that he's just a nobody who's been sent to tell anybody that somebody died for everybody. Stuart Robinson, a special welcome back to 2020. Good to be with you, Neil. (laughs) Stuart I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think there's wonderful depth in your new book. Let me just start, though, and and in the hope that every single listener who's listening in now can be embraced in what we'll talk about over this next hour, because in the foreword to your new book, uh, Dale Stevenson uh, uses a wonderful analogy about playing the game of soccer and uh, and how the gospel works. Uh, just give us a little insight here. If, uh, if we're talking about the world game, how important is it to understand that when we talk about Christian mission and discipleship, we're sort of talking about a game similar to soccer? That's right. In that, uh, I think the point that Dale made is that anybody can play soccer anywhere, whether it's uh, kicking about a, a tin can up an alley in a South American slum or on the finest uh, playing fields in Wembley in England. Uh, Everyone is involved as as players at one time or another. Uh, That's irrespective of whether they end up in the stands uh, just watching the Masters. So with Christianity as well, everyone is invited or commanded really to be uh, a player that is in making disciples. This is not a job for the specialist or the theologically trained or all of the supposed uh, experts of our Christian academia, it is for everybody, all time, everywhere. 
You've written your book, it's called Daring to Disciple, and you're really elevating this whole idea of discipleship way above where perhaps the perception of many Australian Christians is at. Do we need this new elevation to a new level? What are your thoughts on how important it is to talk about this issue of discipleship? Well, the book arises, of course, out of my own experience of about five decades in Christian ministry and leadership. And uh, looking back over history, you can see where we have come uh, right through the Middle Ages into the the time of Luther and Calvin, those um, early uh, reformers, where they made certain discoveries, uh, taking them back to the priority of the Word of God as as compared with... uh, the primacy of traditions of the church, but they didn't discover everything. And then uh, we came along a little bit further. Uh, A couple of hundred years later, William Carey in the English-speaking world led into the cross-cultural missions experience, which wasn't part of the reformers' thinking. And uh, Carey also didn't discover everything because he was swept up uh, by the reformations which came, say, through the Wesleys and so forth in our English traditions, discovery of the new birth experience. And so from that time on, evangelicals at least have become uh, focused, and rightly so, on the primacy of the new birth. But uh, that has drifted into a tradition of people coming into the evangelical stream, which admittedly until recent times was growing, and then settling down and being carefully churchianized in the structures and practices of church. Stepping back from all of that, if we look at our own history in the just the recent history in the middle of the nineteen uh, in the in the beginning of the nineteen uh, hundreds, Christianity was about thirty three or thirty four percent of world population. Uh, then, uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century, we drifted down to thirty two percent. Beginning of the twenty first century, we're twenty twenty uh, we're thirty two percent still. In other words, we've plateaued. In the meantime, not only have we plateaued, but of course, in the first world, the Western world, we're going backwards and we're de-Christianizing rapidly. The percentage of world population is maintained simply because of the revivals in the third world. In uh, South America in 2014, they were regarded then as the most populous Christian continent. They were overtaken by Africa in October 2018 as the most populous Christian continent. That's wonderful. But in the meantime, there's this huge leakage and loss in the first world, and it's coming about because we've forgotten that we're not just to make converts. We are there to make disciples and disciples who multiply. And in the meantime, what is happening on the context of the world We have the number one challenge arising through Islam, which at the beginning of the 20th century was 11%, and today that is 26% of the world population scheduled to overtake Christianity numerically in the latter part of this century. So unless something changes dramatically, unless we get back to our roots and do what we are commanded to do, in spite of all of our wealth and our knowledge that we have, at least in the West, we're going nowhere, we're going backwards, and if we want to continue to do that, it's like I think it was Einstein who said, and he's worthy of listening to, that if we do the same thing today that we were doing yesterday, 
you're guaranteed to get the same results tomorrow. And those results are staring us in the face. Okay, so what we've got is a wonderful story that is developing in Africa, a wonderful story that's developing in South America. You're making a reference to Western civilization, where you're saying Christianity has plateaued and indeed is beginning to go backwards. If we keep doing the same things we've always done, we're in for a really challenging time. In fact, when you talk about walking into oblivion, unless there's a change, uh, this is a reference, and you made a couple of references there and love to unpack these a little more. Uh, given that you're, uh, you're able to uh, talk cross-culturally here, you mentioned the rise of Islam uh, and the decline of Christianity. You said that Islam is on track to eclipse Christianity this century. That's got to be a challenge for every Christian believer because knowing how culture is changing so quickly, that's going to mean change and impact for us in the times to come. What are your thoughts on that idea of Christianity walking into oblivion unless there's change? Well, the uh, numerically, of course, uh, it's an uncontestable argument. It is happening. It has been happening for some time. If you just look at the situation known best of us without my referencing other nations and continents, we all know, uh, hopefully, the situation in Australia. I became a Christian from a totally non-Christian background. I was the first member of my family as a young man to discover Jesus. And at that time, this is back in the 1950s, which gives you some indication of my great age, uh, at, at that time... There was something like 60 or 70% of people who were regularly engaged in church activity. Today, that activity is about down to 7.5% and falling rapidly. Where I am down here in uh, Melbourne, in Victoria, churches are regularly being closed. And, and that's typical all over the nation. There are major denominations who are in free fall, and uh, they, for whatever reason, choose not to acknowledge that, but rather content to focus on domestic issues and forget about the rest of the world, which might be going to hell. So unless we can turn this around, we're in for a rough ride because, yes, uh, as I've referenced, Islam is rising in every single continent. The current book that I'm working on, I'm calling Future History, The Rise, or Dem- rise and Demise of Christianity or Islam. It won't be both. But at this stage, uh, Islam is well and truly uh, moving to the front. And after that, if the what happens in the Middle East, which of course is heavily uh, Islamic, if that happens in other places, then it's all over Red Rover. And we'll have a very difficult time ahead for our children and our grandchildren. It's a bleak picture you're painting because as you talk about the rise of Islam globally, persecution of Christians accompanies that rise. And so what we need to prepare for is that persecution of Christians is not going away. Is that a fair way to talk about that? Well, persecution of Christians is, uh, within the Islamic context, is well known. And yes, it will not go away. But the strange thing is that uh, where there is persecution, not just uh, within Muslim countries, but also in other hostile regimes, say certain communist countries and so forth, 
it is in those places where Christianity is growing strongest. Because our problem in the West is, I, I, I reduce to this, is that we are so affluent that in practice we have no real need of God. We are practical atheists. And if you go back through the Old Testament, you find that when the people of Israel were about to cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land, if I can paraphrase, God said to them, now look, you're going into this land of milk and honey. You've been through all the hardship of 40 years of deprivation. That's hardened you up to do what I want you to do. Now you're going to a land of milk and honey, and you're going to get rich and fat, and you will forget all about the Lord your God, and I'm going to have to come and slap you around a bit to remind you. Well, of course, that very thing happened regularly on a, a century cycle type of thing as we go through the Old Testament. So we understand that affluence is toxic to spirituality. The church in the West is so affluent and so bloated and so self-contented that we have never, ever had to be fundamentally challenged. And therefore, we lack the strength, the spiritual uh, dynamism to respond to the situations. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. You can respond to, to that Facebook question today. In our modern age, do you think personal discipleship is just an optional extra? Facebook.com forward slash Vision Radio. Our special guest this hour is Dr. Stuart Robinson. His new book is called Daring to Disciple. Uh, we're going to move on to some great uh, insight and around the simplicity of Christian discipleship. But let's take a call, Stuart. Gabby is on the line from Bunbury in WA. Hello, Gabby. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Good morning. What are your thoughts? Look, I just want to back up uh, your guest's uh, comments, Dr. Robinson's comments about the Middle East. I'm from uh, Lebanon originally from a very long time ago. And when we, when we left there, there was about 70% Christians in that country. Now it's about 30 and we, we actually went a couple of years ago there and we saw exactly what was going on and what's happening. There's two main sectors of, of the Muslim religion, and I'm not anti-Muslim, but uh, the Shiites are getting bankrolled by the Iranians and the uh, Sunnis are getting bankrolled by the Saudis. And the poor Christians in between are getting squeezed like wouldn't believe they are, they are, they are really suffering and they're, they're wondering why the West has actually left them alone and uh, let them disintegrate and almost disappear from that place where Jesus walked. It's quite sad what I saw there. Wow, Gabby. Let's get a thought or two. Uh, Stuart, your thoughts for Gabby. Well, did I hear right, Gabby, that you come from Lebanon? Yes. Yeah, the figures you're quoting uh, are probably already outdated because, as you know, the uh, the Christian minority there is shrinking rapidly. And uh, yes, they're under tremendous pressure from both sides with the uh, Iranian government cr uh, creating the arc of uh, Shiite influence through uh, Iran and uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and of course now down in uh, Yemen amongst the Houthis. So you've got this uh, great surge going on there. 
but of course the decline of Christianity in its homeland is even more devastating in places like Iran and Iraq, where they're now down to about 1.5 or 2 percent of uh, Christians are remaining, where historically, of course, they've uh, lived ever since the beginning of the faith. And ISIS uh, did a, a horrendous work in both clearing out and killing uh, those believers who would not become uh, Muslim. Uh, there was no one to rescue them. Uh, and the fascinating thing is that superpowers like America virtually ignored their requests for help. And to degree, that still goes on. So uh, the future there is quite bleak, uh, as you suggest. Gabby, thank you so much for your great insight. And let me just say, talk back line open, 1-800-316-316. You can join in our conversation. Uh, let's pick up here, Stuart. Based on what Gabby is saying, and there's a real-life illustration where you can see the numbers changing dramatically in the nation of Lebanon. This idea of an eclipse of Christianity and uh, I think this concept is so powerful for us to understand uh, why this discipleship issue is going to be so important for us. But uh, Christianity is in danger of eclipse in nations like Lebanon, but nations like Australia too. What are your thoughts for that idea? Well, it, it's in danger because the same uh, problems that uh, in, in Australia and in, in a place like Lebanon, I'm not, I'm not picking out any particular nation here, but overall we have focused on uh, churchianizing people rather than discipling people. And where that can be reversed and disciples are made, the situation can turn around somewhat dramatically. For instance, uh, in uh, Iran, when... Uh, Ayatollah, came to, Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in uh, 1979. He promised heaven on earth. And uh, in fact, of course, what turned up was something quite different. But at that time, there had been in that nation, uh, uh, the general uh, figure is about 500 Muslim background believers. And uh, then things started to change. Two things happened. Uh, one, persecution rapidly came with the new uh, Islamic revolution ushered in by the Ayatollahs. And secondly, key people discovered the power of discipleship. And so what happened then was by 2008, I think it was, there was something like uh, regarded 250,000 Muslim background believers. And then by 2016, that number had gone up to about 500,000. And it's generally uh, accepted today that the fastest growing church anywhere is probably the church in Iran, which is under tremendous persecution. However, there is also movements there of uh, very strategic discipleship top to bottom. And those movements are having a profound effect in turning things around. Yes, of course, uh, these disciples, when they become disciples, recognize that uh, their lives will be under threat. But that's precisely what Jesus told us to expect anyway. So uh, when you run the two together, of course, that aspect of persecution, and then link it in with uh, well, pri the priority of discipleship, you have an unstoppable movement, just as exactly as it was 
uh, in the earliest uh, centuries of Christianity with the very oppressive and dangerous uh, rulership of Rome. Stuart, let's bring this back to Aussies listening to our conversation today because we're not experiencing, as you say, these depths of persecution that we're seeing in other nations around the world. In fact, you identified that our big problem right now may be our affluence. But let's talk about discipleship in this context that we have in Australia because we might get the impression here in Australia that when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about something really complicated and that's for leaders and that's for people who've got special degrees from university or something like that. But you take some time in your book to talk about your own story and you talk about just how shaky the start was in your own Christian walk I wonder if you can take us back to those early days and and bring listeners into an Australian type of context of what we might understand about discipleship. Well, when I became uh, a Christian, it was uh, typically in the 50s and 60s, we had these evangelistic rallies. And uh, I went along to one of those. Uh, and uh, there I did what I was asked to do. I put up my hand to receive Jesus. And then, of course, I was tricked in coming to the front. I make sure I never do that in my own preaching. I always say at the beginning what's going to happen at the end, so there are no surprises. But uh, when I went to the front of that meeting, uh, not knowing too much, uh, I was counseled by a pastor, and he was a great and gracious person. I've got to say that because later on he became my father-in-law. But uh, um, he he said to me four fundamental things, all of which were true. Uh, okay, you're a Christian now, so uh, or you, you you accepted Jesus. So here are four things you've got to do: you've got to pray, you've got to go to church, you've got to um, uh, witness, and uh, now the four things. Uh, Read the Bible, <laughs> I think it was. Read the Bible. That's right. Yes. So. As, as someone who has no background at all, which, of course, is quite typical of increasing number of Aussies, I, that's the only instruction I had. And so I found the nearest church was a little church down the road, happened to be a Baptist church with about 20 people in it, and I started to go there. Well, then, uh, and it had a mother church about uh, four kilometers away, uh, a few hundred people in that one. And so I noticed uh, the way I... The only way I could learn was to watch what Christians did. So I noticed that the most important people in that church, they carried big black Bibles with gold edging on it. So I saved up all my money and went to the only Christian bookshop in the city and bought one of those. Uh, Mind you, as I started to read it, I couldn't understand it. It was the King James Version, very, very small print, and it took me about a month to get through the introduction. (laughs) I liked the stories that once I got into Genesis and Exodus, by the time I got into uh, uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, oh, goodness me, I was prepared to give up. I totally lost. So that was my experience in Bible reading. And and then for prayer, I I didn't know what to say or what to do. I thought, oh, I think I'd seen in the movie or something, you've got to close your eyes and put your hands together and and, uh, get down on your knees. I did that, except my non-believing brother, my elder brother, jumped on me immediately, so I gave that away. <laughs> and then uh, to, uh, uh, that, that was two of the things, um, witnessing, and what was the fourth? Um, Reading the Bible. Uh, pr- no, uh, yep. Yeah, prayer, uh, going to church, reading the Bible, and witnessing. Being a witness, uh, yes. 
and, and people laugh at this, but but it was I didn't know the meaning of the word. However, I had had certain um, interact, inter- interactions uh, with the constabulary of those days, and I knew that uh, witnesses went along to the local court. The magistrate uh, would call them in, and they'd do something. So. I, I got on my push bike, which is all I had in those days, and I rode and I, I stood outside that that court and I thought, now, somehow or other, I'm supposed to go in there and do something. I don't know what and I don't even know how to get in there. People laugh at that. But as a new Christian, I had no idea what all of these words meant and what activities they were and how I was to implement them. And I got no help from anybody. But the extraordinary thing was I knew that I was called into the ministry and that I would have to train for that, which later I did. And I went into theological college learning all this highfalutin theological stuff which the great scholars have written through the ages. And don't get me wrong, I love scholarship. I love studying. But in practical terms, it wasn't that helpful. And it wasn't until the second year of theological college there you don't get taught how to pray or how to read the Bible or how to witness. We're we're beyond that, aren't we? Well, actually, we're not. But it wasn't until uh, an American came and... um, met me and and we started to talk about my personal life and he got beside me and started to teach me some of these basic things which formed the foundation for the rest of my life and ministry. And that was like an affirmation of those things that your future father-in-law shared with you on the night that you went forward and uh, made a decision to follow Christ. Those four things obviously have stayed with you. Pray, go to church read the Bible, and be a witness. And those things actually are are those things. I mentioned pray. And uh, those things are profound, simple but profound. Yes, yes. Well, you see, prayer gives you the connection with God. That creates a relationship. That creates intimacy, which is what your spiritual growth is dependent upon. Church gives you community. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. You need others around you. And uh, witnessing flows out of things. And of course, the Word of God is the constant direction daily. That, for me, after all these years, is still the number one thing. So this morning, I got up at 3.45 a.m. I normally get up a bit early because that means no one's going to be calling me. And there I can sit and read the Bible. And if I don't do that, I have a wife who will often ask me, did you read your Bible today? <laughs> Stuart, I need to interrupt us because we're about to go to news. Stuart, let's come to this word, discipleship. And for some people who have been around for a long time, it's like, oh, I better switch off now because uh, that discipleship word, oh, I think I've heard it all before. I wonder if we can take a few moments to go a little deeper in what you might mean in that word discipleship, because, you know, aren't we all disciples if we're Christians? What are your thoughts? Well, it's surprising when we uh, look carefully in the Gospels at what Jesus himself uh, defined as being a disciple. And uh, according to him, uh, he said that one of his disciples... uh, is someone who is totally committed to Jesus. That's Luke 9.23. A disciple is someone who loves him more than anyone else. Luke 14.26. 
who obeys his teaching, John 8.31, who bears much fruit in the work of Jesus, John 15.8. And then he adds to these uh, three things where he says, you cannot be my disciple if you love him less than you love yourself. That's Luke 14.26. If you do not die to yourself, Luke 14.27. And most contentiously, if you do not forsake all to follow him, Luke 14.33. And uh, when you examine those things, he says that uh, the, the areas in which uh, would tie us up would be unless we surrender our desire for material possessions, our vocational interest, that is what we want to do in life, and family ties, then uh, we cannot be his disciple. And they are very, very challenging things. And so I ask myself, am I really a disciple? And am I continuing to be a disciple? Because any of us can go off the track at any time. But that's Jesus' definition of discipleship. And we have to grapple with that and ask, am I that? And secondly, for those in leadership, is my church producing these sort of people? If not, why not? Well, well, I think we've just touched on where it gets hard. And where it gets hard here, and we've been talking about the element of simplicity for discipleship, but what you've just brought us into here, Stuart, is Jesus' version of discipleship. I wonder if that's a conflict or a contrast to some of the modern versions of what we think discipleship is. Let's come back to what Jesus defines as discipleship because that's where it really, really counts. Hey, we're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Narelle in Gordonvale in Queensland. Hello, Narelle. Welcome along. Hello, how are you going? Very well, Narelle. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are Judas. Now, Judas was with the Lord all the way through, right up to the very end. I want to know, do we have Judases as well? Do we have to check ourselves for being a Judas? Well, powerful thought in there, Narelle. Uh, Stuart, your thoughts. Where does Judas fit into yes. this? Uh, is there a Judas among us today? Are we, in fact, the Judas? What are your thoughts for Narelle? Yes. Well, uh, yeah, there always is, of course, uh, a Judas amongst us. In fact, we have that uh, potential, if not being one today, then being one tomorrow. If we uh, engage in sin and keep on with that practice, we can drift away into apostasy that's always the danger for every one of us and uh, of course he proactively then turned against the lord and uh, i i've in my years of experience of course i know of numbers of people who for whatever reason trod that path so in a sense judas is a very unfortunate example for us and a warning that that could be our lives unless we're careful to maintain uh, those things which we know will sustain us throughout the decades in our walk with the Lord. Fabulous to hear from you, Narelle. Thank you so much for your great insight today. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to contribute to our conversation today, asking that question, in our modern age, do you think personal discipleship is just an optional extra? Some responses on our Facebook post today, Stuart. Amanda says, 
How can you disciple to others if you yourself does not stay connected to the true vine? Jesus Christ, read your Bible, pray, church, study group, etc. So uh, I think that connection to the true vine in there. Uh, What are your thoughts for someone like Amanda asking that question? Well, Amanda is quite right there. Uh, I wouldn't want to make it uh, too complicated. You see, you cannot disciple someone if you yourself are not first a disciple. Uh, You can't be a leader uh, unless uh, people are following you. And uh, why should they follow if you're only going around in circles leading nowhere? We tend to reproduce after our own kind. Biologically, of course, parents produce children. The whole of nature is set up like that. A, A tree, a flower, a fruit always produces after its own kind. And if it is not producing anything uh, worthwhile, then, as we've already just uh, noted, uh, Jesus said, well, that'll be cut off, be thrown into the fire. It's it's useless. Uh, And that's why he talks in terms of uh, our being branches or grafted into him. So, yes, we ourselves must be that disciple. And as we relate to others, naturally, that will follow on because discipleship or or making disciples is not rocket science whereby you have a program instituted and you've got these 24 steps and etc etc it's simply two people walking together and relating to one another the more mature the senior person sharing life with the other person and of course there are certain fundamentals which you need to share but it's 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 fundamentally it's that relationship as i said in my book one of the things which has kept me going for the whole of my life is the relationship i've had with a particular person uh his name is uh, alan webb he wouldn't mind my mentioning it on uh, on your radio he lives in tweed heads at the moment but but for uh, over 50 years Alan has walked with me, and uh, if I could use a colloquialism, keeping me on the straight and narrow, always checking out, am I keeping the fundamentals of the faith, am I pressing forward? And that's what everyone needs. Wonderful stuff. Let's take another call. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Steve in Parks in New South Wales. Hi, Steve. Welcome. Good night, brothers, and God bless you both. And to you. What are your thoughts, Steve? Look, um, we don't have time today for, you know, discipleship. In this 24-7 economy with with its politics of fear and the great divide and worker turning on worker and neighbour against neighbour, rich against poor, black against white, you ask most women today and you ask them about their work-life balance, they'll tell you what work-life balance. Um... Look, um, I'm grateful for the programs of Vision and yourself, Um, but um, I I just wanted to know if the brother had read uh, any of Nixon's work, Richard Nixon. He wrote seven volumes, and he was the architect of geopolitics. And in in his first volume, he notes that um, it was uh, with uh, Islam and the Muslim world, uh, Nixon wrote that... um, it was uh, communist China uh, bankrolled Islam, and uh, uh, the old Soviet Union bankrolled uh, the Muslim world. And its influences today in tearing people apart. And this is this is why 
I, I sort of worry the pushing aside of any sort of humanity, this woke and cancel culture, uh, destroying Western democracies around the world. Brother, have you ever read any of Nixon's work? Like uh, He wrote seven volumes. He was the architect of modern geopolitics. Okay, Steve, let's get a thought or two uh, from Stuart. Stuart, thoughts for Steve? Well, Steve, you hit on many, many points there. Um, I wouldn't quite agree with uh, uh, former President Nixon's um, uh, assessment on who bankrolled whom. Uh, whether that was uh, you know, China or Russia or whatever. Actually, the Islamic movement doesn't need any bankrolling because countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and so forth, they are per capita the richest countries in the world. And uh, especially since the OPEC time of 1973, when the formation of the oil cartels, uh, they've had more money than they know what to do with and they spend billions of dollars spreading the message of Islam through the building of appropriate mosques and centres and so forth all around the world today. So uh, I wouldn't uh, be concerned too much about that. But uh, the first section of what you're talking about um, was the work-life balance, uh, which we all struggle with. I think that probably President Nixon got that out of whack given the sad way in which his life finished, because although on the outside he appeared uh, to be some sort of Christian, we learned from the Watergate tapes and other other sources that he was hardly that. <laughs> he was quite different. But bringing it back to us, our, our work and uh, uh, life balance, we do need to give attention to that. We can easily get swept along with the media of today, the 24-hour news cycle, the, the sound bites and all of that sort of stuff, the swirling of uh, data and stuff which comes. And you have to make choices. Each of us has 24 hours to spend profitably, hopefully with adequate rest, with adequate food and uh, with adequate work. And uh, that has been so in my life. And I've tried to discipline myself. You might have heard me say before that uh, I got up at 3.45 a.m. this morning. And the principal reason for that is I always make time to establish a grounding of my spiritual life of the day. So in that first hour, that's the time when I'll be reading the Bible and praying and being quiet before the Lord as much as possible. If I don't have that to start my day with, then all sorts of chaos might emerge. But that's just a simple illustration from my own life. We choose, we choose how we will spend each day and each of us has the same amount of time. And if we want to put a whole lot of time into running after stuff, the immediate gratification by obtaining the latest white goods or the television or the, the new home or, or whatever it is we're chasing, yes, we can end up uh, by just spending the whole of our lives working frantically but always in debt, paying off loans. And when we die, we may as well go to the grave and have stamped on our tombstone. It may as well be as if this person never lived for all that they contributed to the kingdom of God. You can live like that. And many do. Or you can make choices to limit those inroads into your life and find ways to put Jesus first and to be relating to others on his behalf.
Thank you so much to Steve from Parks. Great insight, bringing out the idea that personal choices are so important uh, in the idea. Is discipleship just an optional extra? 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Val is in Mackay. Hello, Val. Welcome. Hi. Um, Thank you for challenging us with the discipleship this morning. I believe we all need it. but I, I just wanted to say, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And he hasn't finished with us yet. I know things look pretty grim at the moment, but it's not the end. Like in Ephesians, it says that uh, the church will be built under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we can uh, pray for and believe that uh, Jesus is going to do something wonderful in these days. Um, that that it's it's not going to be grim forever. That Jesus is building His church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Val, wonderful thought. Let's get a response from Stuart. Well, you're exactly right. Of course, the age of the church hasn't finished. Many people. Uh, write it off uh, repeatedly throughout history and of course many hostile political leaders of all sorts of persuasions and forms of government have tried to stifle it and and uh, write it out i mean in, in the, uh, the the 10 persecutions which the church went through in the first 300 years uh, repeatedly those emperors were saying well we're finished with it now there's no more left but uh, they were proven wrong again and again and again and uh, in the case of the, the western church Church, which is in decline, although I, I acknowledge we do have many wonderful congregations in the Western countries, but it's insufficient uh, in terms of turning nations around at this stage. But uh, interesting things happen. Uh, for instance, uh, over in London and uh, the church in England, like the church on the continent of Europe, has been in decline as well. But over in London in recent years, uh, there was a piece of land bought for millions of pounds sterling, and uh, it was done by uh, le- a church led by a black African pastor. I think he came from Nigeria. And when he was asked, why is it? This is the first time in a century that church has ever bought such expensive land in London, and his congregation has about 10,000 people in it. And they say, well, you know, why are you doing this? You've come from Nigeria. And he said, well, It was from this country that we received the good news. Missionaries were sent out to us, and we have seen now that the church is in decline in this country, so we are coming back as missionaries to bring the gospel back to the countries to which sent it first to us, and we will not depart until this matter is reversed. And I took great encouragement from that because these people, I said before, the continent of Africa now has the most Christians of any continent. But these people have a spirituality, a zeal, a practice and experience and fundamental belief which is not just a matter of the head like we have in the West, but it's also very much a matter of the heart. They know the reality behind the doctrines which we say we believe and they're having a wonderful impact wherever they go and I welcome them. So it is through them that uh, Jesus is trying to revive his church, I think.
Val, thank you so much for your call. Let's take one more call. Let's hear from Sam in Liverpool in Sydney. Hi, Sam. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. Welcome. Just a quick one. Very simple. I've been living all my life. Make time for God. God will make time for you under any circumstances. That's all. Uh, just uh, Sam, it can just be cl- very trying and challenging, but I've experienced in my own life. Make time for God; He will make time for you. Yes, make time for God; He'll make time for you. Uh, thoughts for Sam Stewart? Always, Sam. There's, there's no doubt about it. God is amazing. Even when we neglect Him and turn away, nevertheless, He's always there, graciously waiting for us to renew the relationship. Wonderful. Sam, thank you so much for your call. And running short of time now, just want to spend these last few minutes, Stuart, talking about discipleship. I'm asking the question today for listeners who will respond beyond our conversation today on the Facebook post. Uh, You know, do you think personal discipleship is just an optional extra? Those listening to our conversation today are going to be somewhat challenged in your uh, words of wisdom that say uh, we're headed for oblivion if we just think it is an optional extra has to be a part of who we are. I wonder if there's going to be any change, and we're talking, you know, in a national sense here, is that going to come from the pastors or is it going to come from the lay people? What are your thoughts here, Stuart? Well, often when God wants to do a new work, uh, he will bypass uh, the leadership and, and, and the big watering holes of Christianity. He, he starts in uh, incredible out-of-the-way places through unknown people. And that's the history of the movement from the beginning. It's repeated again and again. He can start anywhere. And I know uh, many churches with whom I've been in touch uh, over the years. I've seen some of them on the point of dying totally turn around and start to grow again when they start to take up uh, serious, persistent prayer and start to make disciples. It's not an option. It's a command of our Lord. And uh, so it's not just something we can take as a take it or leave it sort of thing uh it's there to come in his command and i've tried to write this book as make it as small as possible as simple as possible and that anyone can follow the the principles in it it's a short book it does describe that simplicity there's a number of wonderful analogies or metaphors in there that make this discipleship easily understood and uh, what i think listeners will love about your book Stuart, is You've taken definitions, uh, not from your own personal, uh, perhaps more sophisticated thinking about these things, but you've come back to Jesus and what he meant by discipleship. And we discovered that while we're talking about it being simple, a little bit like the game of soccer where anyone can play, you don't even need a ball, you can kick a tin around. It's so simple that everyone can participate in this. But when we start to get into the nitty-gritty, what does Jesus mean by a disciple, that is perhaps where we need to dig a little deeper. And let me just finish on a thought or two from you here, because some people are going to be thinking, well, great story that you told from London about a big church of 10,000. You yourself uh, were discipled in those early years in a small church, no more than 20 people. What are, what are your thoughts here, just briefly, uh, for people who are part of a small church saying, well, discipleship matters in those big churches, not in my small church. What are your thoughts for small church people today? Well, I want to say that although uh, the Lord enabled me to build a, 
a large church of 5,000 people here in Melbourne that uh, the foundation for my spirituality was in that small church of fewer than 20. And and I, I used to say when I was working around Australia more that this was one of the greatest missionary sending churches in the nation because God measures greatness not in seating capacity but in sending capacity. And that little church every couple of years would spin out another pastor or missionary in training and so about half of the people ended up in full-time christian service and i thought man if my church of five thousand people had two and a half thousand people they sent out that'd be great but uh size is immaterial it's it's the spirit in the place and the the commitment in the place and of course if the lord is in the place it will be growing anyway If there's a powerful message in the conversation today, it's get back to those basis of discipleship and not only for ourselves personally, but to adopt someone, get someone else under your wing and begin to be that mentor, be that discipler in your local church. It's been our absolute privilege today, Dr. Stuart Robinson. Uh, best-selling author, mentor and speaker and of course as you're saying a former church pastor grew a very large church in Melbourne Uh, Stuart, your book Daring to Disciple Uh, people will be able to get it everywhere you can buy good Christian books Kurong or Amazon uh, all the online booksellers there's a website I can point listeners to drstuartrobinson.com uh, Dr. Stuart Robinson, drstuartrobinson.com. But the book is called Daring to Disciple. It's an easy read, and there are profoundly uh, simple but powerful concepts that you'll pick up about discipleship. drstuartrobinson.com, or you can simply Google Daring to Disciple, Stuart Robinson, and you'll come across somewhere you'll be able to get a hold of that book. Stuart, thank you so much for taking some time to share your heart with us today on 2020. Okay, Neil, thanks. It's been great to be with you as usual. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.